thank you for tuning in to the American Thoracic Society section of Medical Education Podcast. Again, my name is Ryan Clauser. I'm one of the intensivists at the University of Vermont Medical Center in Burlington. I'm an assistant professor of medicine, and uh, also I'm here with one of my good friends. I'll int- let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm uh, Garth Garrison. I'm a pulmonary critical care physician here at the University of Vermont Medical Center. So welcome to the podcast. We represent the East Coast contingent of the section of medical education. So before we get started on our discussion today about rounding in the ICU, we're going to first cover some food for thought, which includes reviewing one of our maintenance of certification questions um, hosted by the American Thoracic Society. Okay, Garth, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, so here goes. A 59-year-old farmer with a history of severe COPD with an FEV1 of 42% predicted. Sounds okay. And community-acquired pneumonia who was extubated after five days of mechanical ventilation. One hour later, the respiratory therapist notices increased worker breathing and diaphoresis. Clinical exam reveals strider and scattered expiratory wheezes. So the question to you is, which of the following concerning post-extubation strider is true? A. Strider following extubation indicates the need for reintubation. B. Male gender is a risk factor. C. Corticosteroids prior to extubation may prevent this condition. D. The cuff leak test has a high positive predictive value. E. Non-invasive positive pressure ventilation should be initiated. So hold those thoughts. We'll answer that question at the end of the podcast. Um, But now we'd like to kind of launch into our main topic of discussion for the day, which is going to be about um, how to efficiently and effectively incorporate teaching into ICU rounds. Um, I'm a full-time intensivist here, so um, working on rounds is always very busy. We have a whole... uh, multitude of learners in our rounding process, including medical students, interns, and residents. So um, it's really difficult at times to incorporate teaching into rounding on a census of over 20 patients. So um, we'd like to just talk about a little uh, tips and tricks on how to accomplish that in an effective manner. Max Peters and Perspectives in Medical Education in 2014, uh, they cited some articles that stated that Back in the 60s, 75% of clinical training was done at the bedside with bedside teaching. But a newer review by Crumlish in the Journal of Hospital Medicine in 2009 actually showed that today's estimates in that paper found that only up to 19% of clinical education was done using bedside or or, um, rounds teaching. So, you know, we don't want this to be a dying art. I think it's an important concept to keep up on and keep good at. So, um, Dr. Garrison, I wanted to kind of throw it to you, what do you think about incorporating teaching in, into rounds in the ICU? Yeah, I think I think it's really challenging. There's, um, like you mentioned, a, a number of barriers to getting it done. We're having increasing pressure um, for documentation and, and things unrelated to education, which um, uh, presents challenges, especially when we have uh, variety of different learners. I think there's a few uh, different strategies to try and incorporate teaching in in the ICU. Um, 
some more involved than others. Um, certainly you can do things like um, schedule didactic sessions, um, although those sometimes are limited uh, and can be a little irregular depending on how busy your service is and what arrangements you have to keep things covered. It seems like, you know, when uh, when we plan for that here, there's invariably something that gets in the way of having... There's always a critically ill patient yeah. in the ER as soon as we sit down to do a, a lecture. Exactly. Um, we've got uh, some, some places, and, and here in particular, we've got an ongoing simulation-based education series for the residents and students, uh, which is great. Uh, but you know, is occurring um, once per week right now, uh, maybe increasing, and uh, we'll hopefully have um, uh, uh, some more topics that we'll be able to discuss as we increase it. But but again, that's um, uh, 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 taking people out of the unit. It it um, uh, limits the education time to those couple of times per week, and I think there might be um, lots of opportunities to to learn from the patients that we're we're caring for. Uh, I think there's you know, on rounds, there's a couple of uh, uh, ways that maybe education gets delivered. One is the sort of um, attending-led discussion about the patient outside the room, sometimes um, talking about, you know, what, what we would think would be interesting tidbits about patients and little tiny um, uh, pearls to, to hopefully have them uh, remember. Um, I wonder if that is is super effective. Uh, it's hard to hard to remember the pearls if you've um, if if you've delivered twenty five of them over the course of the rounds. Exactly. And so I think the bedside teaching uh, or making learning very specific to the patient and actually doing teaching in the room can be really effective uh, for uh, really helping to to drive home the learning experience. It kind of raises the stakes for the learner, um, makes um, the education seem a little more real and makes it more applicable to what they're doing. And so it's it's a little more active uh, way to learn. Um, and there's been you know, a few sorts of strategies um, discussed to, to make bedside teaching effective. Uh, I would encourage people to look in the white journal um, this was um, April 2016, um, Volume 13, uh, Issue 4, uh, from uh, Graham Carlos uh, and, and others that outlined a, a strategy that I think makes a lot of sense for incorporating bedside teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think um, uh, the first step of it, I think, is probably the most critical. And this, is, this similar theme is present in other sorts of strategies for bedside teaching, including the, the my plan from, um, from Chad Stigreth um, in academic medicine in 2013. And there's others, other models out there that, that, talk, about, uh, that talk about this. But uh, I think the first step is probably the most important, and that's to, to foster a healthy climate for, uh, for education. And so that means that you sit down at the beginning of the, of the week, really outline what your expectations are of the learners, you assess and get a feeling for what your learner's expectations are from you. I think you need to figure out where your learners all are. Uh, right. you, you need to sort of get a good understanding as to what level your students are at, um, where, you know, where their interest is. If it's, you know, potentially the end of the year and it's a student not going into to, to medicine and they're, they're finishing an AI, they, you know, come at it with different expectations than someone who's, you know, going into medicine and, and, 
um, uh, really engaged in the rotation. So there's, there's different expectations for the learners. And I think being explicit about that up front is really important. And I think it's also important to, to talk with the, uh, the learners about, you know, about, about questions that you're going to ask them and make sure that they understand that if you ask them difficult questions, it's not meant to pimp or embarrass them. I know that's been a big sort of topic sure. of interest of, tr- you know, trying not to pimp students on rounds, which is a big, uh, um, uh, can be an issue if it's perceived as mistreatment. So I think setting the expectations that this is a healthy learning environment that we're going to ask people a lot of questions, I think is, is important. Um, if, Patient and families are, um, are are around. I think it's it's uh, are are um, are there and able to communicate. Um, it's it's you know really important to make sure that when you go in the room that you uh, talk with the patient and the family about the fact that you're going to be doing the teaching and make sure that they're comfortable with that kind of um, uh, 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 with with the team coming in and, and talking. Some families may be very leery about it, and we certainly don't want to. Um, to burden the families, but I think setting the patient expectations is um, is important. And then I think you, you know keeping um, making sure that when you're doing the teaching that you have um, that you've that you've planned ahead. So I think it's it's helpful to maybe have picked a few of the patients with some pertinent issues that you want to talk about that you want to focus on, and you've got that teaching moment outlined in your mind or on paper or something ahead of time. So while you're doing your pre-rounds or something, if there are some things that you see on patients that you know you want to educate people about, plan that ahead of time. And then when uh, and then when you are um, uh, doing the teaching, trying to stay really focused on the teaching and not you know, letting, um, not checking phone or, uh, looking at other things or looking at the computer while, uh, while the teaching is happening is, is really important. So keeping that attention, um, in, uh, in, in the teaching moment is, is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of delivering the teaching, um, I, uh, I think asking, uh, students to develop sort of hypothesis-driven investigation can be really useful. So, uh, ask either asking questions that involve them coming up with hypotheses that they can test. Uh, maybe maybe asking, "Do you think this patient is in heart failure?" and asking them what physical exam findings might support that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that thought, and ha- and then you can you know you can evaluate their reasoning. You can listen to them talk it through. They can go in and perform a physical exam, which lets you um, be able to observe them doing some of the skills that you can evaluate them on. Um, I think you really want to get away from um, asking the you, you know read my mind type of questions. <laughs> I think they they outline that in the the article here. So um, the guess what I'm thinking questions. You know, I don't think they're very effective in terms of engaging your right. learners, and they just seem like interesting tidbits that maybe don't uh, don't resonate quite as well. So, so asking questions that involve them thinking, generating hypothesis, and testing it either by going into the chart or going into the room and examining the patient, I think is is probably the the way to go. And then the the end of it is the the uh, evaluation part, where you know at the end of the week or the end of the day or as soon as as soon as you can to provide them. Um, some evaluation of what you observed during the rota- you know during your teaching session, how they thought through problems, mm-hmm. how they performed their physical exam, um, 
they uh, uh, you know try and be specific about behaviors that um, that you that you observed while you were you know asking these questions and asking them to to show you things in the room or on the patient, and then you know asking for feedback for yourself. And we have to be good uh, we have to be good uh, receivers of feedback and um, and understand that uh, that's how we improve as as teachers. So I think I think that this um, this model I think could work really well. And they they call it care climate attention reasoning and evaluation uh and i think i think that this is a, a really good way to to think about it i don't know you're that's really awesome and pretty timely because that just was published this month mm-hmm. right so um i'm certainly no expert but i do round in the icu every day with our team um so i just kind of wanted to talk about some of the things i do maybe we can talk back and forth about tips on how to improve our own teaching styles but some of the things i've kind of honed over the years is um a few few simple things number one i feel like when you're teaching on rounds you need to keep things as concise as possible because we are usually rounding on a large number of patients and i don't want my med students dropping over of exhaustion after we hit the three hour mark for rounding which is pretty pretty exhausting so i like to keep it as concise as possible Kind of like you mentioned before, I like to try and come up with one main teaching point per room or patient, which means we kind of just hone in on one specific topic. We discuss it briefly, um, and if it comes up organically, then that's great. If not, I'll try and tease it out of whoever's presenting the patient to me so that we have one focused area to kind of pick on and tease out for each case. Um I think the other huge thing, like you pointed out earlier, based on your article, was that you have to create a comfortable environment to discuss things. And you have to, I think also, like you said, you have to know who your people are and where they're at and their knowledge base. Um, I do try and understand what everyone wants to do when they graduate and what their areas of interest are. So, for example, this month I have an AI, an acting intern, is really gunning to be an ER doc. She wants to do a residency in ER. So, you know, I really tried to focus on things that are going to be helpful for her as an ER physician in, you know, the next six months. The key points about when you should think about intubating, who's in shock and who's not, which is great for all the house staff. But I'm trying to really focus in on points that are going to be helpful for her because I think that's helping her pay more attention, stay engaged in the process. So I think knowing the learners and creating a comfortable environment is super important. I also think that we have a huge focus on patient family center rounding here. So um, most days in most cases we'll have patients or families rounding with us. Um, And I know that creates a lot of nervousness in our house staff that they're going to say something silly or embarrassing in front of patient loved one. But I've actually found in feedback from family members, they really love to be involved in that process. They find it, fascinating how much detail we go into in every case they're really um, i think comforted knowing that we're constantly reviewing the differential diagnosis for the patient we're constantly going over what could be happening we're not just making a diagnosis and then just doing nothing i think they're really families are really happy to see that every day we're going over everything again with a fine-tooth comb we're reviewing the medication list every day we're hitting the rounding checklist every day so that's comforting. So I think, by and large, the feedback from families is that teaching around is great. And I actually think 
they like to learn a little bit more about what's going on with their loved one too. So I think we're not just teaching the house staff, we're also teaching patients and families. So I think, again, about that environment. I think the other huge thing for me when I'm teaching on rounds is that I would rather be involved in teaching by showing the house staff and not just telling them. So, for example, if we go into a room, we're looking at someone in shock. That's a good time for me because I like teaching ultrasound to bust out the ultrasound machine, put the probe on the patient, and show them why I think they may be in distributive shock or cardiogenic shock based on the echo findings. I think those visual images from the ultrasound are much better at teaching them about shock and hemodynamics than just talking about it on paper. And it might be good to ask them before you do the ultrasound, what do you think we're going to see in different yeah. types of shock? And that might right. give you, a, you know, them to give a chance to think about what they're going to see. And then when you do the ultrasound, either having them do it or, or you doing it, they get they get right. to th- pre-process it, right. test their hypothesis by doing the ultrasound, and then they, you know, get a little bit right. uh, a little bit more out of it. Exactly, and you know, maybe that's not the best time to teach them about how to actually get echo images, cardiac images, mm-hmm. but that all goes into part of it, and I think that's so helpful. Even if it's simple as flipping your list over and drawing the oxygen dissociation curve, and just showing the team what this is meaning and what what do we have to worry about as far as the PaO two and the ventilator, or looking at the the flow volume loops on the vent. All those things are super powerful. I think it really burns it into the, the house staff's brain a little better. So those are some of the things I've done, and it's worked pretty well for me. Um, again, it's about keeping it concise. All these things are great, but if you spend 20 minutes hammering on some topic and you still have 15 more patients to see, everyone's going to hate you yeah. pretty quickly. So those are things I've picked up, and you know, I think we all learn from different examples. I've learned from other attendings I've had in training other colleagues I've worked with and watched teach. What are some of the things you like to do when you're uh, running rounds? Well, I think, you know, I, just like that, I think I like to think ahead of time about specific uh, specific topics of interest that we want to maybe spend a little bit more time doing a deep dive on and, and uh, try to not just wing it through the whole rounds. I think having a plan going ahead of time and, and understanding what your learners want to get out of it. And, and, you know, you don't necessarily have to be all things to all people with every Mm -hmm. time you do a learning session. Um, you know, you, you may have a topic that is more of interest to medical students. You may have a topic that's more of interest to your fellows, you know, and I think everyone gets stuff out of that, but you can certainly try and tailor some of your teaching. I mean, you're going to be, you know, interacting, you're going to be having lots of encounters over multiple days. And so it doesn't all have to get crammed into one, one period of time. You know, I, I really like, Asking people the uh, the sort of think it out type of questions, you know. Um, so, what would you expect if this happens, or what um, if if the patient has, you know, someone coming in with um, uh, with a, a respiratory failure and a lung mass, you know, what you know what complications they might see, or if they start having hemoptysis, what would their right. plan be, and where do you think it would be coming from, and using using kind of like. Um, uh, trying to engage them into clinical reasoning to think about their plan right. and using that then to tie into um, to, to mechanisms of disease processes and things, I yeah. think is... And so many it, times that comes true. You talk about around saying, well, what happens if this patient develops AFib with rapid ventricular rate again today and they become hemodynamically unstable? What would you do next? So yeah. I think it does help them clinically reason it out, which is awesome. I think the other thing 
like you kind of mentioned, is that you don't have to do all the teaching yourself. You can use your students to teach each other. For example, you can turn to your fellow and ask them what they think about a certain issue, and that they might have a lot of, they almost always do have a lot of great insights and things that we're not necessarily thinking of, but they have good insight, and they can add more to the uh, teaching encounter as well. Yeah, I think I think it, it, it could be even useful for, for upper level trainees to to demonstrate things. So if you wanted to say, you know, um, hey, fellow A, uh, can, you know, can you can you show us how to do a, a pulmonary exam? Right. And then and then the fellow's got to got to sit there and do a complete you know pulmonary exam and demonstrate that to the trainees. And sometimes right. that that's useful for both parties too. So so I think um, so again I think just you know it, it comes down to 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 knowing the expectations for the rotation you have to be invested in your learners mm-hmm. and you have to be you have to have a plan i think during the day about when you want to 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 have focused educational things i mean you're going to be hopefully educating them the whole time you're on rounds with your clinical reasoning and right. you know what the, the what's happening with the patients but these specific you know educational events i think you know should be should be sort of thought of in the context of who your learners are and, and in the right environment for learning. And, um, and, and so I think that's probably the, the most key. And there's a, you know, maybe a lot of ways that you could, can work on engaging. But I think that's probably the key step. I think we all agree, even though there's a lack of good evidence that, we, that bedside teaching is helpful, I think we all feel that this is something we need to do, no matter what the evidence is, one way or the other. Um, and uh, lastly, I would say that sometimes even your actions are teaching, not just your words. So, you know, the house staff are watching everything you do and watching how you interact with patients and families. I think that's an important teaching point as, to make as well. So we're very much invested in teaching at the bedside here and on rounds. It's something we're going to continue to do, hopefully continue to hone as we get older, balder, and grayer, right? Um, and our final thoughts, I think we should probably wrap up. Yeah. Good luck. Get excited. Teaching is, uh, it's good for you and it's good for your learners. So that's right. Okay. So now that we've talked through our strategies and tips on how to round and teach on IC rounds, let's get back to that MOCQ question, which if I could remind you involves an old 59-year-old farmer with COPD who's got pneumonia, is extubated after five days of being on the vent. Now, they're coming to you for help because he's starting to get into respiratory distress, he's diaphoretic, and he's got strider and wheezes. So, what do we do following post-extubation strider? Which of the following is true? A, strider following extubation indicates need for intubation. B, male gender is an increased risk factor. C, steroids prior to extubation may prevent this condition. D, the cuff leak test has a high positive predictive value. Or E, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation should be initiated. So let's talk it out. What do you think, Garth? Well, I think uh, certainly uh, someone who's strider is post-extubation, you're going to be concerned about um, their airway and whether or not they're going to be able to remain extubated. But in and of itself, the presence of Strider doesn't mandate that someone needs to be reintubated. So I wouldn't say that uh, choice A is the is necessarily the right choice. 
Um, yeah, I think people with strider post-extubation are very high risk, but there are some things we could do to try and manage it. So I'm going to agree. Probably strider doesn't immediately mean we need to reintubate. All right, what about B, male gender as a risk factor? So what do you think? Is uh, male gender an increased risk factor for post-extubation strider in someone who's been intubated for five days? Uh, no, I think uh, actually women are at higher risk for post-extubation strider, so um, I, I would say that that's incorrect also. I'm going to agree. Um, there's actually some old data that looked at post-extubation strider, and women seem to have a higher likelihood. Okay, so... What about C? Steroids prior to extubation may prevent this condition. Uh, so I think that's an accurate statement. So giving um, scheduled doses of steroids prior to extubation has been shown to reduce the, uh, the incidence of post-extubation strider. Yeah, agreed. Although I don't put every patient on steroids before extubation. But you might want to think about it for people who have been intubated for a long time. They had a difficult airway. There's a lot of manipulation uh, prior to intubation, those those might be people you want to think about it. So maybe C. What about D? Cuff leak test is a high positive predictive value to predict who's going to get post-extubation strider. Uh, so I think that it can be incorrect. Um, the the cuff leak test performs poorly for predicting yeah. post-extubation. Agreed. Strider. It's a trap. I think it might want to you you might want to raise your um, level of concern if there's no cuff leak, but it's really not a good predictor of whether someone's going to have strider post-extubation. So how about E, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation should be initiated for someone who's got upper airway strider, maybe laryngeal edema. Is that a good idea? So I think if, you're, if you've got someone that's in respiratory distress related to upper airway edema, the answer is, is not going to be to put them on non-invasive <laughs> ventilation, and, and uh, they, they, they may need to just be reintubated. Yeah. I think if they don't need um, support, you've got time to try some other things, racemic epi, and um, uh, try and uh, get their airway a little more patent. But um, non-invasive ventilation would be, uh, I'd uh, be hesitant to put someone on non-invasive ventilation. Right. I agree. you got to do the ABCs. Make sure they've got a good airway before you slap a BiPAP mask on their face or a non-invasive mask on their face. So the correct answer is C. Use of corticosteroids prior to extubation may prevent this condition. So great. So we've got our MOQ, our MOCQ um, credit for the day. And uh, we'll see if we can find a new question again next time. Um, great. I want to thank everyone for listening in today um, to the section of medical education podcast by the American Thoracic Society. Again, I'm Ryan Clauser. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at NeuroCritGuy. And it's uh, Garth Garrison, um, Twitter at, uh, at VTLung. Great. So uh, thanks for listening in. We'll catch you next time.